everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Jesse Single. Uh, Jesse is the author of a new book called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. He's also a contributing writer for uh, New York Magazine. Uh, Jesse, how are you doing? I'm good, Richard. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we're glad we're glad to have you. Uh, so your book is basically, uh, it's got eight chapters, I think, right? And each one is a, you know, it's, it, they follow a similar template and they tell the same story. So there's so there's this idea that comes of academic uh, research, usually psychology, uh, you know, one or two cases, criminology or uh, behavioral economics. Uh, and basically you have this idea that gets into the bloodstream. Uh, it, has an, it has a promoter or two in academia and they get those ideas out there and they they claim that these ideas are going to solve some, you know, deep social social ills, right? And then it turns out that when people are a little more careful, they go back, they look at the research. Either the effect is small or it's not there, uh, or the promoters of the idea in the popular press and in the media wildly exaggerated uh, the relevance of the results for real world phenomena. Um, and l- let me ask you, um, a question because there's a, you know, there's a, there's a title of this book and there's a, you know, on the surface, it's about psychology, right? It's about what's going on within academia, but it's not just concerned with that. It's, it, I think the, there's a idea that you think psychology and, you know, maybe academic research more generally has sort of become a kind of replacement for um, real effort to solve social problems. I mean, and yeah, that's obvious from the uh, title. Uh, is that how you see it? Do you see sort of psychology as thing as just like avoiding important issues and you know, political debates that, that need to be had? Yeah, I think basically what's going on is is we live in a time of a lot of political dysfunction and stagnation and and you know decades of of rising inequality. Um, I, I could recite the whole litany for you. So so I think basically what's happened, and you know this is this is a theory. It's a bit speculative, but I, I do think some of the energy that might in another time have gone to you know genuine activism and policy and organizing. I think. People are a little bit turned off from some of that and and might seek their gurus elsewhere. And, and some, particularly social psychologists, have have claimed that relatively simple, low cost, uh, sort of non zero sum interventions can can make a lot of progress. And and that's where I think the overclaiming comes in. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's so in specific examples. So you have something called the. Implicit association test. And I, you know, this is the thing where this thing was really famous. I mean, I remember there was a King of the Hill episode based on it. Have you ever seen this? <laughs> no, I didn't know they did one. Uh, that That's funny though. Yeah. So it was in the, I guess, late nineties or early 2000. It was so popular. There was a, yeah, it made it to King of the Hill. And I think Peggy or Hank, I don't remember who takes it and they found out they're racist and they're, they're horrified. And I don't remember. I saw it a long time ago. I don't actually remember <laughs> sort of the, the plot and how it works out, but I'll probably go back and watch that. And so this idea is you have these black faces and these white faces on your screen and you, um, And, you know, if you associate white names with good things and black names with bad things, uh, that shows that you have some implicit bias in favor of whites against blacks. Uh, There's this thing called power posing. Uh, Who who was the um, who was promoting power posing? That was uh, uh, was that Duckworth or Duckworth was just grit. That was Amy Cuddy uh, of Harvard Business School, another social psychologist. 
Yeah. And so the idea is women can overcome sexism in the workplace, you know, their uh, wage differentials or whatever by just sort of sitting in a different way. <laughs> and, and yeah, and so these are things, you know, these are things that society really, really cares about. Um, and they've, um, yeah, and you're right. I mean, they're, they're probably not going to be solved by psychology. Um, at the same time, do you think that possibly, you know, uh, uh, you know but I was, as I was reading your book, I was also wondering, isn't it also a part of it that is that not just politics are hard, but we've tried sort of the deep root cause stuff and a lot of it didn't work. Uh, so for crime, for example, I mean, the 1960s saw basically the rise of the idea that we have to look at the root causes of crime. And we, uh, you know, the, the basically there were civil rights protections uh, increased. There was a time of economic, uh, uh, economic rising, uh, rising prosperity, and the crime rate just shot up in the 1960s. Um, so, I mean, have these root causes, this sort of root cause approach that you that you favor? I mean, does this have much better evidence for it than say the? Uh, this is a very broad question. Obviously, every every issue is different. But uh, it, it, do you think part of the reliance on psychology is the root cause uh, approach might not have worked as well? as people hoped? I think there's definitely some situations in which that's the case and in which sort of like, um, I, I'm I'm definitely on the left and broadly in favor of redistribution. I, I just think it has to be smart and, and evidence-based. So yeah, I do think part of what's going on could be that certain approaches are, are seen as having failed. Um, I also think in a lot of places, especially with regards to crime, we, we never really get a chance to try the best, most uh, evidence-based approaches. So um, yeah, I, I do think it could be a little bit of that. And, and I especially think coming out of the 60s, there was obviously um, a sense of growing satisfaction with sort of like uh, great society type programs. Yeah. So, well, can you talk a little bit about that? You say we haven't tried the the, the best evidence, uh, the best uh, evidence supported approaches for crime. Well, what do you think those are? Well, so so I'm not sort of a criminology expert, but I, I was really influenced by some of Mark Kleiman's work when he was alive and um, uh, Don't Shoot, a book by David Kennedy. Uh, it involves sort of pretty intensive efforts to figure out who is doing the most shooting in these neighborhoods. And it's often a very small percentage of young males. And you basically leverage the fact that uh, cops have some discretion with regard to who to take in. And you sort of get the gang members together in an auditorium and you say like, look, if there's one more body, we have enough to arrest a lot of you on a lot of like, quote unquote, minor charges that could still uh, provide years in jail. Um, and there's some evidence this works. I mean, I haven't looked into the data in a long time, but that's the sort of thing that actually requires a lot of effort and competence and, and money. So, you know, the, the root causes is, is tricky. And, and so I guess that wouldn't technically be a root causes approach, but it does require some investment and funds and, and buy-in basically. Yeah. This, I mean, this is fascinating. This sounds like, um, you ever read about uh, ancient China or ancient Japan where they put, you know, a few families together and they'd have like one person or one family responsible for everybody. I think that, I think most liberals would probably be a little bit horrified by, by that because they are, you are on the left. So yeah, I think, I think they would, yeah, not, not, not like that, but it, it does sound like it would work. It's sort of a collective responsibility. And I think the well, idea. Well, so the, the, but the basic idea is these are, these are situations where you could right away, 
uh, arrest a young person for, for example, having a gun they're not supposed to have, and you could indict them right away. And you're saying, we're going to hold off on that. It's actually a lenient approach. We're going to hold off on that contingent on there not being more violence. And the, the sort of theory is it's only a small number of people doing the shooting, and they could be sway- persuaded by their friends and by their community not to do it. So it isn't, it isn't collective responsibility in the sense that we're going to haul you off for something someone else did if they sort of already have the goods. Yeah. So you're, you're already, I mean, so you can present it as, or maybe this is the way, you know, it is you, you would have otherwise arrested this person. Um, and you know, there was a reason to arrest them. They had committed some kind of crime and you're not, you're going to hold off on it. Yeah. It makes sense. And and this, this was never, this has never been tried anywhere at the, at the local level, as far as you know, No, no, it has if I read the book a long time ago, if memory serves, there's some, some evidence of success in Boston, for example. Um, but, so that that's just an example of like to me again I'm sh- maybe 10 years later that was debunked or something I'm not fully up on it but that's an example of sort of sophisticated policy making that requires uh you know investment but you're not you're not just throwing money at the problem it, it's just the point is these problems are difficult to solve Yeah I mean I think investment you know as far as money has not been our major problem I mean we got much wealthier in the 1960s government spending went up um, you know, it seems like the problem is it's that, you know, things are just not going towards, um, programs that, that do work. Well, I'm, I'm especially sympathetic to that. I, I, so I'm not in, I, I do think a lot of sort of basic welfare programs provide good bang for the buck, like food stamps, stuff like that. But I, you know, the, the current conversation about, um, anti-racist trainings is a good example where in some cases you have tens or hundreds of millions of dollars going to programs that have no evidence behind them. So, you know, when I say I'm in favor of, of redistribution or investing in underinvested communities, I, I mean for evidence-based approaches, basically. Yeah, sure. <laughs> do you see uh, so the do you see the um, sort of this debate about critical race theory and this uh, these uh, sort of newer forms of trading? Do you see them as sort of the intellectual descendants of the implicit association test? I think a lot of of modern race trainings probably have some IAT elements and some critical race theory elements. Um, I just did a newsletter post on this. I, I think some of the critiques of CRT make perfect sense because they're just sort of smuggling in these pretty strong and pretty radical um, claims, basically, uh, about things like objectivity and the nature of white supremacy. I also think like there's some elements, I'm not an expert on CRT, but like there's some elements of that tradition I find perfectly reasonable and and to have raised some fair points. But yeah, it seems like there's been, IAT is still a part of a lot of these packages. It seems like now there's more CRT, microaggressions are also very big, elements of sort of white fragility stuff from Robin D'Angelo. It's just like a grab bag of sort of uh, untested and and often overhyped ideas. Do you think part of the problem is, as I was reading your book, I mean, I think a lot, there's a market for this stuff at the corporate level. I think everything from critical race to IAT and this other stuff is that uh, corporations are afraid of lawsuits. They're afraid of um, the EEOC coming after them. Uh, And they want to basically create the impression that they're doing something. And even if these things can't be solved at the individual firm level, um, you know, they want to be having, they want to give an impression that they're doing as much as possible as sort of a, a a self-defense mechanism. Um, Do you think there's part of Do you think that's part of what's going on? Are you suggesting the, uh, despite their viral videos, the CIA and the Pentagon and the FBI are not at root committed to racial justice? Well, in that case, it's a little strange because the EEOC, uh, you know, and, and anti-discrimination lawsuits are probably not coming for the CIA and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
uh, I mean, what you described is is the basic uh, history of how diversity trainings came to be. So yeah, the short answer is yes. I, I you know, I think some firms probably have some people who feel strongly about racial justice. I think for the most part, these firms are trying to cover their asses and and make a good PR push. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, do you? I mean, do you also? I think uh, that possibly. I, I, when I read your book, I mean, one thing that struck me is um, it's it's the same story again and again, right? It, it, it's there's there's a, there's just a template, right? And after a while, after you see example after example, don't you think maybe? you know, the whole idea of how we do science, how we do peer review might be broken. I mean, it's like if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you know, advising Gorbachev in like 1989, right? And you could tell him, you know, we just haven't done, you know, communism the right way. We just need to do this or we need that. <laughs> right. And the actual answer was, no, the system is bad where, you know, the government runs the supermarkets and the, uh, and the, you know, and uh, uh, the oil refinery. Um, we just need a different system. I mean, is, is the thing here just the peer review system is just somehow fundamentally broken? I think the difference is that, you know, you can, you can explain theoretically and with empirical evidence why like certain kinds of price controls are going to lead everything to go to hell uh with peer review uh, so i i sort of end the book on a hopeful note i i feel like researchers psych researchers at least understand some of the things that have gone wrong and they trace back to very specific sort of methodological practices and in theory if you could resolve these the quality of science would improve so i don't think peer review is inherently broken I do think a lot of the practices surrounding it, such as like, you know, uh, you you write a new paper challenging Theory X and one of the people who review it is the godfather of Theory X. Like, obviously, there's a lot of room for sort of human malfeasance to sleep into this and it's not a pure process. And I wish people better understood how messy and human a process it is. But I don't think it's fundamentally broken. I think there's some reason for hope. Yeah. So you said, you know, the, there's, um, you know, you can, you can give like theoretical reasons why, you know, price controls and uh, these other uh, communist policies might not work. Well, it's, uh, to me, it, it does come down to incentives because you can fix one thing, but it seems to me, it's always the problem that some, some new thing is going to pop up. Um, but basically you have these, you know, you have the peer, the peer review system. And I, you know, spent some time in academia is these people write papers and they're judged by other people who write papers. And there's, you know, there's uh, norms about like length and like writing style and citations. And I think a lot of it serves to obscure the results. I think if, you know, if you just had like bullet point results for, for a lot of these things, instead of like these, uh, these uh, papers you really had to dig into, I feel like a lot of, it would have been much harder to sell this. A lot of this stuff is much more important than it actually was. Um, and, you know, when you're a peer, I mean, I've done peer review. I mean, your incentive is, you. It, it's anonymous. I mean, so the incentive is like, you know, you have no incentive to get it right. Not even like the reputational incentive because nobody, nobody even knows you did it. Uh, so it's sort of a miracle that anyone who's reviewing a paper like gives any effort or makes any, you know, attempt to check what's going on at all. Um, <laughs> and I just sort of think that that's, that's just a bad system. I mean, I think you need to have, I think you need, you need better communication styles. You need basically, you know, you need, uh, uh, you need shorter papers that go, that uh, straight to the point in a uh, uh, in a regular format. You need it to be more open, where basically you get it out there as soon as possible. Anybody could say anything. You make the the data open, and you're just clear about what you're communicating, and people can sort of go back and forth and and have these debates. Uh, I, you know, the, when I look at the system, it's not to me. I don't feel like 
if you just do if you just make everyone pre-register, that that's going to solve things, right? I, I think the problems are just much deeper in, in how we do science. Um, yeah, I don't, but I, I don't think pre-registration solves everything. I think it solves one set of problems, and and I think other tweaks solve other or or address other problems. I basically I just see it as an incremental process, and I think. Um, Psychologists are slowly shoring up their ship, but I agree that like no one tweak can fix the whole thing. And I think there are some serious uh, questions about the incentives in anonymized peer review. And you see a lot of especially younger researchers or sort of renegade researchers moving away from that. And if they see a paper they think is bullshit, they'll just do a medium post about why it's bullshit. And that that has an effect on science, too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so frustrating in some ways. I have a paper on the uh, Thucydides crap. I don't know if you know what that is, but people say, oh, you know, there's this uh, uh, statistical evidence that China and the U.S. are like destined to be enemies or destined to go to war. And I sort of, I take this argument apart, like very carefully. And I finished this paper like four or five months ago. And because it's going in a peer-reviewed journal, it, it, I have no idea what it's going to be published. Like there's a debate going on about like laws, uh, whether the U.S. should take a stronger stand against China. There's some, you know, there's a bill or two uh, before Congress. And I and I just saw Marco Rubio cite the Thucydides crap for like why we need uh, to be tough on China. And like, I wish my idea was out there. I wish this paper was out there and I could promote it, <laughs> but it's not. And it's waiting there, you know, it's waiting for, you know, six months to go through the process. It's already been accepted. It doesn't need any more peer review. And I just wonder, you know, well, why? It's really inefficient. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's talk about, I mean, a few of the, just a, f- a few of the p- uh, specifics. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, um, the positive psychology one is fascinating. Can you talk about uh, positive psychology and, and what it is? Yeah. So basically positive psychology is this idea that humans, um, it, that we can, A, that being happy leads to certain predictable results. And and at the peak of sort of positive psychology's claims, those included like a stronger immune system and ability to, I think some people even claimed you could ward off cancer by being happier. Uh, and then positive psychologists also claim that um, interventions, specifically theirs, can reliably reduce people's happiness a great deal. Traditionally, positive psychologists argued that about 40% of our overall happiness pie was under our own volitional control. And that, you know, that leaves a lot of room to potentially get a great deal happier. And um, Marty Seligman was one of the godfathers of positive psychology. In the late 90s, he uh, became president of the American Psychological Association, in part by arguing that psychologists shouldn't focus only on healing people who are sort of damaged, for lack of a better word, but should also help healthy people to flourish. And that idea really caught on. That led him to lead the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And people are uh, who go through that program, uh, Masters of Applied Positive Psychology, are basically sort of happiness coaches who aren't trained as traditional clinical psychologists, but you can send them to you know go to a school and teach the kids to be a little bit happier in theory. Yeah, and the and the claims were exaggerated as far as the. Um uh, like immune system and stuff. There's just, there's just nothing for that. Right. A lot of, uh, positive psychologists themselves. I mean, definitely external critics and then some positive psychologists themselves. Yeah. They think a lot of this stuff has been overhyped. And as I note in my chapter on this, if you look at some of the specific claims, uh, they're, they're pretty wacky. I mean, one of them was that it's a critical positivity ratio where you need like, uh, ratio of 3.32 it goes to several decimal places of of your ratio of positive to negative thoughts um 
It was just this idea sort of plucked out of thin air. It's actually uh, based on a physics equation, which makes no sense. And then there's been other ideas that aren't quite as wacky, but but my critique of positive psychology is that it tends to oversell its wares to the public and it, it makes a lot of money doing so. Yeah, I think I discovered a positive psychology book in maybe my late teens and I think it made me happier for a few months. I think it actually did. <laughs> um, and I think that, I mean, I think what I think I like about this intervention or this, and maybe the evidence is not that strong, but I, you know, I, it's low cost, right? You can give people like an article on positive psychology and you can read it and you can either take it or not. Right. And if it, you know, if it maybe on average you do a, a, a proper study and, you know, you find that there's no statistically significant effect, you know, maybe, you know, you, you take that evidence, of course. But if it, it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for anybody. And isn't like, isn't having sort of more of these sort of low cost options out there that people can just sort of go through their lives trying, you know, is there, is there any harm in that? Well, I mean, the Positive Psychology Center sells its programs uh, to schools and institutions around the world. And. Uh, these programs don't have much evidence for them. So, I mean, the harm is just is just that. On, you know, I get what you're saying more generally, and this is true of self-help too. Like if someone buys a self-help book I think is silly and they derive some meaning from it or they think that it improves their mood, sure, I'm not going to like slap it out of their hands. It's just, it comes down to like when you're making empirical claims about your work and selling it to institutions, that's where I think a higher standard should apply. Yeah. And do you think that, I mean, part of this is that people, I mean, we have so much debate right now, right now we're, as we're recording this, the uh, CDC just said that um, people who are vaccinated most for the most part, don't have to wear masks. And if you've been following, you know, the science at all, you know, you, you knew that this, this was the right call, you know, months ago. Um, But I'm amazed, you know, you see people treating this as like, now something has changed about reality. I mean, something has changed because policy is going to be based on uh, CDC recommendations. Do you think that? I mean, but do you think that part of the problem might be that we give what science has so many problems right now in the way that it's practiced, and we just give it too much credit, and people who aren't scientists or social scientists are just too you know, are just too eager to believe people who are within academia and entrepreneurial and, and see a, uh, an effort to make profit. Do, do, do we have to just get the idea out there that, you know, people just need to be more skeptical towards science, basically anything, anything that's coming out of the academy? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think the scientific method is an incredible innovation. I think it can lead us toward truth when it's it's followed closely. I also think science is a human institution and humans have incentives and, and a lot of stuff can go wrong. So, I mean, one of the main takeaways of, of 21st century social psychology in particular is that just because scientists say something is true, that, that doesn't make it so. Uh, so another chapter um, that you uh, is one where you talk about um, uh, the grit, the grit issue. And I, it's fascinating because the this is actually a case where. I mean, I was look, I was reading just about uh, Angela Duckworth, and I and you know the way you presented her book, she she comes across she comes across better than most of the people you're debunking in the book. Do you think that? Do you think that that's accurate? Yeah, yeah, I definitely have some uh, gripes with the way she presented this idea of grit. Um, you know, just a, a scale she came up with to measure people's sort of stick to itiveness and conscientiousness. But overall, she's been more open to sort of scaling back her claims and not doubling down than some other people. Yeah, so we so we got to preface this by you know giving giving all credit to Angela Duckworth for that. She uh, it was taken by people out other people and they, they, they sort of made this thing the be all end all. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating because you had these studies are just, 
the way you described them. I mean, one of them said grit was like really important in passing some kind of military program. And it was like 95% of people passed, but like among the grittiest 98% of the people passed. There's just, it's fascinating that, that this is, you know, used as actual evidence. And part of it was, and the grit is not even, it, it, it seems like she just, re, they just, uh, the grit research basically just reinvented conscientiousness, which is a well-established idea in, um, in uh, uh, personality psychology. And it's not even as good as conscientiousness. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one of the main problems with grit is that it, it just seems to basically be conscientiousness, which is something we've known about for decades. It's one of the so-called big five personality traits, and it has some predictive value in, in measuring how well people do in work or in school, uh, but it doesn't. Duckworth's claim was long that it like it can do a lot better than things like intelligence scores or, or physical fitness scores uh, in, for army stuff. And there's if you actually like peel apart the studies, there's very little evidence for that. Like conscientiousness does matter a bit. All else being equal, it's better to be conscientiousness than not conscientious or, or gritty rather than not gritty. But it just it seems in most cases like things like intelligence and physical fitness matter a great deal more. So it's sort of a depressing answer because there's there's especially with intelligence there's only so much you can do to sort of make someone smarter if anything um but conscientiousness and grit just don't matter as much as most people think statistically speaking is is, is my argument in the chapter yeah and i i mean one thing you said was iq is just magnet orders of magnitude um orders of magnitude higher and predicting you know how well people do and things in in a lot in some settings not all of them but in many yes uh, well, are there some places where conscientiousness and grit are better than IQ? What, what, what would those What would those areas be? It, it gets complicated, but they're mostly these sort of range restricted settings, like you mentioned. Like if you want to predict who will who will get through a tough army training program, or um, you know, among like UPenn students who are already clustered at the top of the SAT distribution, there's some usefulness there. But in, in like representative populations, I, I think there's very little evidence we should care about grit uh, more than the other stuff we already know about. Yeah, the um, yeah, that, that's important. Yeah, that's what I thought probably would be range restriction scenarios. Like you see these uh, uh, stories now where they say, well, we did a study and the GRE is no good for graduate school admissions because we saw the GRE scores at our program did not predict um, how well people did in the program. And, you know, the GRE, you know, the, the everyone in the uh, program has a GRE at the, you know, between the 95th and the 99th percentile or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, that, that tells you nothing about. Yeah, it's a pretty our, basic mistake to make statistically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so I guess if you're, you could just come up with a list of sort of uh, like why studies are bad. So you have, you know, um, you have expanding it to where it doesn't belong. So the positive psychology, I mean, I was, uh, you know, impressed, like impressed, I mean, sort of shocked by how it was so. Uh, eagerly adopted by the army for a PTSD, a PTSD treatment when it doesn't, there's like nothing in the literature that even comes close to claiming that it's a PTSD treatment. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I thought that was one of the most remarkable stories of the book. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It was my, um, one of my favorite chapters. It, the army basically adopted this program called comprehensive soldier fitness around 2010 that, uh, took this this positive psychology program from Marty Seligman and, and his institute and adapted it for military use. And that program was called the Penn Resilience Program. It was designed for 10 to 14-year-olds in school settings to prevent anxiety and depression symptoms. It doesn't really seem to do that. Like it does it a little bit, but but 
probably not in a way that's clinically significant. That's according to one of the creators of the PRP in a meta-analysis. There's also the the very um, glaring question of whether you should expect a program for 10 to 14-year-olds designed to prevent anxiety and depression symptoms to be adaptable to a situation where you're talking about 20-year-olds, you're sending into a war zone who might get PTSD. So there was never really any theoretical reason to expect this to work, and yet the Army adopted it as a mandatory program and has spent perhaps $500 million on it, though I don't have a precise uh, price tag. Have you, um, you know, just a minute ago, we mentioned um, IQ and how important it is. Did you, did you come across in your research any example of somebody trying to oversell it? Because you think if you, if you were able to do this, it would probably be very profitable. Oversell their uh, ability of some treatment or intervention to actually improve intelligence? Is it, or is that something that people like, it's not even plausible anymore that anyone would even, would even buy into that? I don't think intelligence researchers view it as plausible, and I didn't come across uh, researchers making that claim. I'm positive that if we went on Amazon, we could find both uh, books and supplements guaranteed to raise our respective IQs. Uh, yeah. So is, is it, is it I guess, then a little bit surprising that no, there hasn't been a figure to take that, like a, uh, an entrepreneur, like the people who took the IAT treatment out of academia and into uh, – uh, you know, into into the mainstream? Is it surprising that nobody has tried that? Because you think there would be a market for it, wouldn't there? I'm sure there's a market for it. I just think it would be hard for that market to catch on within uh, psychology because you have the intelligence researchers who would all view that as, as probably impossible. And then there's others within psychology who who want to sort of banish IQ testing and SAT testing because they have uh, political problems with it. So there, I'm not sure there's room within academia for that particular sort of yeah. matter. That's a good point. Intelligence researchers are their own sort of isolated island within academia, and I think that kind of <laughs> that kind of that kind of uh, I th- you know I, th- I think if you're you go into intelligence research, you're going into something that's a little bit less um, less acceptable than a lot of this other stuff, and maybe you know that just doesn't select for the kind of person who becomes a you know becomes a TED Talk celebrity. Um, yeah. You know, reading your book, I was wondering, is there anything, so could you, if you wrote like the opposite book, like if you tried to write the inverse of this, like all the great things psychology has done to improve like schooling and government, um, what would that book look like if if somebody wrote it, just broad outlines? I know you'd have to research, do the research for the book in order to have a good answer to that, but do you have any ideas of basically what psychology has gone right? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of like what are now viewed as basic insights about in-groups and out-groups and tribalism and and moral psychology. There's a lot of good stuff there. And I initially, my book had more of the history of social psychology, which, um, you know, th- this was one of many scientific fields that frankly benefited enormously from World War II. There was a flood of funding. There was also a lot more interdisciplinary research between social psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists that that bore some interesting fruit. Um, it was really like in the 50s into the 60s, if memory serves, that social psychology became much more sort of isolated and professionalized at its own thing. And it became a little bit fixated on experimental lab results as opposed to sort of uh, field studies or I guess qualitative work. And in my view, we don't have access to a par- parallel universe, but I do think the more social psychology has like 
refined its statistical tools and spent time in labs generating cute results, often those cute results don't really survive into the real world or tell us much about the real world. So to me, a lot of like the best tradition of social psychology has to do with with things like fieldwork and figuring out how it, figuring out how social psych ties into other fields. And I think that stuff has been on the wane for for decades, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the political psychology, which I know a bit about, I think there's been, I think because so many people are interested in politics and trying to explain like why people are conservative, why people are liberal, I think it's grown sophisticated, you know, more over time, uh, as far as I, as long as I've been watching these things, I think there was this once idea that basically our fundamental differences were about moral differences. So I think Jonathan Haidt was the, uh, was the uh, most famous promoter of this idea. And then the system worked because some people went around and they did studies where they showed when you introduce partisan. So this is like a good example of like something is abstract in the lab that works. Uh, but then when you take it in the real world, it's overcome by something else. And so when you vary the partisanship of like, you know, the, the person committing some kind of moral violation, you find that partisanship just overwhelmingly trumps the uh, uh, the moral foundations under real world conditions. Right. Yeah. I, well, it's interesting. I might be trying to pitch a piece about this, but I think um the response to the pandemic, you know, it's it's just one thing, but that's like to me, how useful is the insight that conservatives are more sensitive to disgust and contagion if in the most important real world example imaginable, the results point in the exact opposite direction. And I'm sure you could come up with a theory for why why this is different, why it shouldn't undermine the the more general theory of left-right differences, but I find that to be pretty powerful. And and you could sort of make the same argument about not that liberals uh not that we're calling for Russia to be bombed, but clearly liberals were much more sensitive to this idea of Russia sort of uh making cyber incursions into our elections and manipulating our elections, whereas it's, it does sort of seem like tribes and partisanship are just about everything at this point, right? Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, just about everything is like, yeah, not that far off from the truth. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, the germ, th- the germ theory, you know, the, there was this idea that, yeah, the, uh, one of the fundamental difference between conservatives and I, you know, they, they go, but they have an evolutionary story of why this is the case, right? So they'll say, you have this trade-off where, uh, you want to trade and potentially mate and benefit from uh, uh, outsiders coming into your group and interacting with outsiders. But the problem is they could bring, you know, the, they could bring a disease with them. Uh, so basically, some people are more uh, on the safe side and they don't want to associate with outsiders and they're more afraid of disease. And so other people are more willing to take that risk. And the first group is conservatives who, who are afraid, you know, they become xenophobic and afraid of germs and so on. And the second group becomes liberals because they just want to, you know, open the borders and are, are not, are not full of fear. And then you have this COVID-19, which is a foreign pathogen like a literal like it's a literal thing like these things are like supposed to be symbolic it's like something from like a, a john height experiment or something like you read about a foreign pathogen it, it's a perfect real world example yeah exactly so and then you know trump says this thing is no big deal and everyone else says it's no big deal and then you look at like globally like right versus left I, you know I, I don't know if there's any uh you know, I, I don't know if there's much of a, a pattern there. I mean, like famously liberal Sweden had the, you know, uh, had the uh, most hands-off approach in Europe. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea is it's, it's all just tribalism all the way down. Now, I, I don't like, like, you know, I don't think we can 
I think at the mass level, I think that's true. Like, I, I think that like, if you took just your average median 50th percentile Democrat voter and 50th percentile Republican voter, I think their, I think their psychology is pretty much the same. Um, I, I to, for the most part, I think, you know, controlling for race and gender and, and culture and all that stuff. Um, yeah. Hyper-partisans might be different or like serious partisans. Yeah. But especially ideologues, like, if I, if I follow a, a liberal on Twitter or I follow, you know, any conservative with any ideas and anyone who's not like a Charlie Kirk, right? Like anyone like a, uh, like, you know, like an Orrin Cass or like an AI fellow or anybody, they have ideas and they have, they apply them in a consistent way. Right. It's just that when Trump gets up there and he says, well, this whole thing is from China and it's fake. The, the average voter <laughs> yeah. does not have a lot. In co- they didn't come to their conclusion the same way the AEI fellow did. Uh, right. They they just listen to what Trump says and then follow him there. <laughs> so, yeah. So and this is like it's sort of a rediscovery of an old older idea. Uh, I, I think the moral foundations. I think why it caught on was it was sort of more. Uh, it, it, I think it fit with social desirability bias. It's like these differences are deeply rooted in evolution. Like everybody's perspective is valid. And each of them like has a, something to contribute to the survival of humanity. <laughs> I think it's a very like sort of kubaya idea. While the pure tribalism idea is just like they're all just equally stupid, <laughs> you know. And they're just yeah, we're all we're all sort of corrupt <laughs> in bad faith, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's um, yeah. So I, I think what you're saying. I mean, what it's when you talked about uh, you know like the field work and getting out of the lab. I mean, that sounds like you were agreeing with my earlier point that it's it's the structure of science that matters like i would you know one thing i would like to see is i would like to see like somebody pay or find a way to have access to the um, to the research that corporations have been doing right for the last you know whatever 50 to 100 years i think there's good stuff that's buried in there um and you know there's an incentive to get it right there in a way that there's often not in academia and i think organizations that that just do stuff in their own interest and haven't like been encouraged or haven't made an admission to um to share that knowledge with the world i think there could be a lot of interesting stuff out there do you, do you, do you have the same intuition yeah yeah i mean that's not something I, I know a lot about but that that sounds right to me it makes sense yeah um so you so yeah so um let's uh let's move on i mean i, I recommend everybody read the uh the quick fix you you you've also a you have a substack uh you still are employed in the um uh, by new york you're a, you're a contributing writer there uh one of your last articles is about why um deplatforming the right might actually be counterproductive and we're talking about the far right people on parlor and these other apps and uh by banning people from twitter uh what, what's the case for what's the case for just not doing it yeah, the case is one of uncertainty. People seem to have some strong beliefs about the effectiveness of deplatforming, the idea that if you ban someone from one place, they'll just sort of go away. And you know, there are there are some examples of obviously if you if you pull a demagogue off Twitter in the rare cases where I'd be comfortable with that, you're definitely reducing their reach. Overall, I, I'm not sure that like if it basically depends on is your goal for the uh, let's let's stick with anti-Semitism. Uh, I'm I'm Jewish. I have an interest in reducing anti-Semitism. Is there is the goal for there to be the fewest number of anti-Semitic tweets or to reduce the probability of an anti-Semitic attack? And I think those two goals might actually pull you in different directions. If if you're 
aggressively monitoring online for anti-Semitic utterances and, and quickly banning people. I understand why you might want to do that. I don't like coming across anti-Semitism online, but that might have a radicalizing effect that could drive people underground. It could drive them into sort of obscured communities where, where the rest of us can't keep an eye on them. And it could sort of hasten actual plots. Everything I just said is speculative, but I don't think that's any more speculative than saying, well, yeah, if you, if you kick people off Twitter for being anti-Semitic, it'll reduce worldwide anti-Semitism or at least like the the threat of it. I, I basically just think no one really knows what they're talking about when it comes to deplatforming and people make a lot of um, rather strong assumptions that demand evidence. Yeah. The, I guess, I mean, the question is what, what, what should our, what should our priors be, be here? So yeah, that's an interesting distinction you make between uh, preventing just a general decrease in anti-Semitism versus uh, anti-Semitic, during anti-Semitic attacks. So a- anti-Semitic attacks are, you know, racial, uh, racial like shootings and, and stuff like that. These are sort of stochastic events because they're very rare, right? Um, statistically. So I think it's, uh, you have so much, so few small, like say anti-Semitic, so small number of like, say shootings of, uh, of Ju- uh, Jewish places that it would be hard to get any statistical idea on that. It happens like, you know, once a year or once every two years or something like that, or every six months. Um, so I think that's actually hard to, study. Um, so I guess that would suggest just trying to decrease total anti-Semitism, right? Because that you can, that, that is at least theoretically measurable. Well, like what's going to prevent or cause a shooting? There's so few of them that, it, that it's hard to get it. It's hard to get an answer there. Yeah. The connection between sort of online rhetoric and, and real world uh, horrible outcomes is, is difficult to untangle for, for the reasons you described and others. I, I just think people put a little bit too much faith in the idea that we can like ban our way or censor our way to a better society. I do think there's something to the idea that having some of the stuff out in the open makes it easier to monitor it, to sort of de-radicalize people. Uh, there was some reporting from the New York Times about about when you crack down on some of these sort of far-right uh, sort of militia-style groups, they do just immediately go underground in, into sort of um, encrypted channels, which is much harder for the authorities to monitor them. So all I'm asking is for people to sort of attend to the possibility of unintended consequences. And 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 they just have some humility about this because we don't really know how most of this stuff works. Yeah, I think that's right. And you, I mean, you have these, um, yeah, like something like, you know, the Proud Boys. I mean, when you see them like, you know, uh, marching in the streets in part of a demonstration, it's sort of surprising because you think you get the idea that what's life is not just like Twitter, but like what's in the newspapers and what's on TV. And if you have a group that's not on TV, it's not in newspapers and it's not on Twitter. <laughs> it, it, you know, you see it actually make the news and it's like surprising. Like, how did this thing exist? Maybe you force people. I mean, maybe if you take away people's social media, like it forces them to actually meet in person and the groups like meet in person, like are more likely to like form communities and actually get together and do something. Well, if you just had them, you know, LARP on Twitter and Facebook all day, they, they would do nothing. That, but that's the thing. I think the vast majority of people are LARP. I mean, I look at just, just my side progressives and the vast majority of people just spouting off radical stuff are never, they're never, they don't do anything. They just tweet all day. So I'd almost rather when it comes to like malevolent actors, I'd almost rather have them just, venting horrible steam on social media than risking um, them doing anything. I mean, look, this is all, you're not supposed to say this, but by any sort of historical standard, America does not have a major problem at the moment with political violence. We're lucky not to. Like, the, obviously, the January 6th event was horrible, but it wasn't 
I, I think people sometimes have a tendency to over overstate the direness of the situation. I don't. I actually don't think we're about to have like a civil war or anything like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I mean, I've written. I wrote an article to that effect in the Washington Post in the uh, uh, right before the election when that was actually a sort of somewhat contrarian position. And I think that <laughs> I think it it became a little more. I think it became a little more contrarian. Like January six, people were really worried, and I was always <laughs> of the idea that. This stuff is, yeah, this stuff is generally uh, exaggerated. And we luckily do not have a, a political violence problem in, the, in this country. So, you know, we're, we're sort of looking for a crisis that, you know, people will say, oh, well, Trump, um, I mean, I guess there, there's two, there's two ways. There's like a right wing uh, claim and then there's a left wing claim. And, you know, with various, uh, you know, they both have, I think, some truth to them and some exaggeration to them. So on the, on the right wing side, or the left, let's start with the left wing side, they would say, look, it was almost basically a coup. And you have these people who don't believe in democracy. Trump can tell them the election was stolen. The entire, like the, the majority of Republicans in Congress went along with it and like objected to the election results. So like, what if Republicans were a majority in Congress? And, you know, what if Republicans are a majority in Congress in 2024 and Trump is the candidate that he loses and he tells them, he tells them the election was fixed, right? I think they, I think they're, I think they're thinking along those lines. And so you always, you know, you're, you're the, I think it's, it's not about, you know, the, the smart version of this. It's not about like violence, like there's going to be daily violence in this country, but uh, there's going to, you know, there, there's potential for democracy to be under attack. And if these ideas get out there that we need censorship to prevent that like sort of nightmare scenario. And on the right, they'll say, look, there's Antifa, you know, there's the general disorder, there's the increase in the murder rate that's gone up. And I think they say credibly that if, there was, you know, if there was like a right wing Portland, like in Portland, you know, you have these videos of like Antifa, like smashing shops and like blocking off streets. And if there was like a right wing, like a right wing version of this, I think it would be the top story in the country or like Chaz slash chop in Seattle. Yeah. Look, there were, I, 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 I don't think America, I don't think Antifa threatens the stability of the country. There was obviously some pretty bad stuff that went on last summer and some of the media coverage of it was abysmal and clearly biased. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Uh, and obviously, symbolically, there's something worse about breaching the Capitol building than there is just about anything else, including like trying to burn a federal courthouse, which did happen in Portland and is also pretty bad. Uh, I, the level of disingenuousness on both sides of this is, is really bad. You, you sort of, to describe this honestly, you you have to do a bit of zigzagging. I mean, I, I do think there was more violence and property destruction uh, in the last year coming from left-wing agitators. And I do think the Capitol attack was, was uniquely horrifying. I don't think any of this adds up to like America's teetering on the brink. I think we're a big country and there's going to be occasional outbursts of violence because we're because we're a big country. And I don't think we're anywhere near where we were in the 60s when like political assassinations and bombings were routine. There's just no comparison. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think, I think you're, I think you're right. I think the, uh, I think that the conservatives are absolutely correct when they say there's a double standard here, but there's also correct to say Antifa is not the end of Western civilization. Um, and it's not, you know, but at the same time, I mean, I do think we have gotten used to, I don't think we have a problem with political violence in this country. This gets to something that you, another article you wrote from New York recently about the increase in the murder rate. We have um, gotten used to just a background level of crime that is just off the charts for any other country of our wealth. And I went to, I mean, I went to law school at the University of Chicago and 
there was nobody in the school who would walk through, you know, three blocks south of campus in the middle of the day. I mean, it, it was just something you, you just wouldn't do. Yeah. And this is the norm in our major cities. And, you know, we, we just accept it. I mean, we talk about Antifa or we talk about, you know, some, you know, uh, an isolated neo-Nazi shooting or something like that. And we don't really, we, we don't care that like huge portions of our inner cities are just, are just in these terrible, you know, third world conditions. I mean, do you think, do you think we under-exaggerate that while we over-exaggerate the political stuff? To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, we are, we are possibly coming out of this, this very long violent crime decline. I mean, unfortunately, it looks like the decline may have been arrested. Um, and obviously, yeah, there's some neighborhoods of Chicago and, and St. Louis that are, you know, you have to zoom in pretty far, I think, to get horrific murder rates, but they are horrific murder rates. And I, uh, I think liberals have difficulty talking about this because we view conservatives as the ones who like hype up crime fears. And sometimes crime fears are hyped up and sometimes they're opportunists who take advantage of it. But it just pisses me off because like, I'm not, I'm not the one who's going to have to deal most likely with potentially having a relative get murdered or not feeling safe walking home. I mean, even, even New York is relatively safe now or the part of it of Brooklyn I live in. So I, I, I just, there's something about the liberal conversation on this that bothers me. Eric Levitt at New York magazine wrote a good piece about this a ways back. Um, but yeah, I, 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 mostly I agree with you. Yeah. And the, I mean, I don't think you have to, you said you have to sort of zoom in to get a really bad murder rate. I mean, I, I just uh, looked at Baltimore. Baltimore is uh, like a 55 per hundred thousand. And if you, you know, if you put that in Latin America, I mean, it's pretty much the worst of the world. I mean, Latin America is the highest murder rate. Uh, I think Latin America and uh, and Africa tend to have the highest murder rates in the world. And, you know, so a city like Baltimore. 55 is very high, yeah. Yeah, the entire city, you know, much less, you know, neighbor. I'm sure there are decent parts of Baltimore, right? Um, but the entire city has a 55, so it's up there with, you know, Honduras or something. That's horrible. Americans should, I mean, uh, no one should live under those conditions. But uh, if you care about, marginalized people you should certainly care about people who who face bullets whizzing past them when they leave the house and and it is a bit of a blind spot among some liberals i think yeah i think i think you're right and so let's talk about i mean you you've just wrote an article we've had a historic uh murder uh increase in 2020 uh can you talk can you talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, uh, the piece I wrote on this was sort of very sort of provisional, just trying to figure out exactly what happened. I talked to a couple of criminologists and, you know, it, a lot of it is is the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic put a lot of pressure on a lot of people employment wise, uh, the sort of youth community organizations that in the best cases keep people off the streets. Many of them just shut down entirely. There's also probably a role for the the protests and the general disorder they caused. So it was just sort of a horrible year. It was like if you if you wanted to like build a scenario likely to increase violent crime, 2020 was that scenario. So uh, it's just been very bad. Yeah. Well, you, the way you say it, there, it sounds like pandemic and sort of the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and the controversy of policing. You, you sort of put those on equal footing. There was a story in the New York Times uh, just released where. They basically don't even mention the the protest. All they talk about is COVID nineteen. Well, I'm not sure I would put them on equal footing, but I think it's silly to imagine. And this is based on on crime researchers I talk to who are not reactionaries. I think riots and looting and 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 
protests against what are in many cases horrific acts of police violence probably do have some effect on police behavior. I think untangling that from everything is very difficult. And it, it was just sort of a complicated mess of factors to the point where I, I definitely wouldn't be comfortable assigning weight to this versus that. I mean, like I overall, I think the effect of the pandemic um, – what you would think it would be much bigger than the effects of, of protests because there were a lot of protests, but that's not as big an event as the pandemic. But but who knows? There's also these like these bad sort of vicious cycles, feedback loops. Um, social science is complicated. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you know, I think that I think the COVID. I mean, the COVID explanation I think is difficult because COVID hit the whole world. Um, and maybe there's been crime rate, you know, it increases in other countries. I haven't heard about them, but, you know, maybe it takes a while to get that data. So you would expect that, right? If it was COVID and it was lockdowns and it was all that stuff. And then, um, you know, I, from what I hear, it's been completely concentrated in the black inner cities, which you'd expect to have the effect of the protests. It hasn't really been a uniform rise in the murder rate across the country. Uh, so just taking the, those preliminary facts, I mean, doesn't it suggest that, and even like you get at the more basic level, if you just look, you know, there's been some articles written about like the area, around, like Minneapolis, the area around like where George Floyd was killed and, you know, like the shootings that have happened there and they've just gone through the roof. I mean, it's pretty suggestive that it's, in my view, you know, I, I, you know, we don't know. And of course you need more research, but if I was going to have to place weights on, I would say right now probably the protests and the issues of policing much more than COVID because I don't see the, I don't see other things in the world you would expect if it was actually the, the pandemic that was causing this. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just think it's a bit confounded because the highest crime areas are probably the areas like, um, you know, I feel guilty saying this my my day to day life other than not be able to like see friends and stuff was not that affected by COVID because I don't rely on a community center that might have shut down or, or other sorts of social services. So I think maybe the same neighborhoods that have always had high crime, you could make a case they've also been hit hardest by the pandemic. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, nothing you're saying is, is unreasonable. Yeah. So, I mean, you are a, um, you are a, 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 you know, yourself identify as a liberal and you're, you know, you're on the list of like liberals that other liberals hate, right? You're, you're, you're up there. What do you think it is about you that sort of rubs other leftists the wrong way? And um, what, is it, what does it say about liberalism that they dislike Jesse Single? Well, I mean, it, it sort of depends who they are. My, in my view is it's mostly just sort of shrill people on Twitter. It, it mostly comes down to I've written a little bit about trans stuff, um, particularly in Atlanta cover story, just pointing out uh, – the strongest argument you could extract from that story, which was 13,000 words and deeply reported, was was that kids who are about to go on blockers, puberty blockers or hormones should be well assessed. You should make sure uh, they really have like deep-seated gender dysphoria, that other psychological causes have been ruled out, and so forth. This is not a controversial opinion anywhere except on Twitter or in certain lefty communities. So uh, the the difference between the tweets I get and the emails I get, including from liberals, is is profound. Uh, I have good relationships with plenty of, of fellow progressives and plenty of leftists. It's just Twitter makes everything psychotic. And, uh, you know, when you become controversial, people will sort of just lie about what you've written, which it, which is unfortunately been true in my case. But uh, I think, you know, there's a bit of um, – a circular firing squad going thing going on on the left. There always is, but the you know the right has similar problems. I mean, look at the the present Liz Cheney story. We're at the point where you can't really 
be in good standing in the GOP while acknowledging the results of the last election. That's sick too. So um, I think humans are humans and, and we're all just dumb primates. And that can explain some of this. Obviously, I wish the left were more highly functioning and didn't go after people uh, where there isn't a huge amount of fundamental disagreement. So that's been frustrating. But I don't know. Overall, I'm, I'm fortunate that I get to do what I do for a living. Yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned the difference between emails and Twitter. And I was just thinking, well, emails are private. They just go to you while Twitter is, you know, going out to the world. Uh, do you think that's do you think that's the difference? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. You, people would be surprised at who I've heard from, uh, who I've gotten very supportive notes from. Uh, Twitter is just the the incentives to just sort of signal your righteousness and grandstand are intense. and And I don't I think it's a very bad idea to gauge someone's politics or worthiness based on Twitter's response to them because Twitter is not a rational place. Twitter is is very deranged. And of course, I'm saying that opportunistically because on Twitter, a lot of people dislike me. But um, well, I guess that's what I'm saying is it's actually my, my actual opinions and the views I've expressed are the furthest thing from controversial in America. Uh, it's just among a subset of very online people on Twitter. They are. And it's unfortunate to me that very online Twitter people uh, really pull a lot of weight in terms of dictating a lot of media coverage these days. I think that's a very bad development. Yeah. I remembered, I mean, during the uh, 20, uh, 2020 primaries in Demo- in the, uh, among the Democrats, there was just the conventional wisdom that just Biden would collapse, that there was just no hope that it was like name recognition and he was like heading the polls for like a year or more. And I look back at history, like how often somebody led the polls for a year and then lost the nomination. And it basically, I mean, I, it never happened in recent history. I mean, there was nothing comparable to it. Yeah. Um, and it was the same thing actually with Trump in 2016, where he was just leading the polls forever. And like, nobody could believe it would just be Trump. And yeah, I think you're right. I think Twitter is having a distortive effect. It, it has a certain select group of people. They believe what they want to believe. And then, but this this website is extremely powerful in, in shaping the narrative. I mean, we're all very online and we're all on Twitter and like CNN producers and New York Times journalists and like, you know, academics and everyone else is reading this website. So it's not like these people are just isolated and, you know, in their own bubble. It's like their bubble sort of becomes the bubble that we're all living in. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's my worry. So, um, I mean, you see this reflected in some of the coverage decisions. Like uh, I've written a bit on my newsletter about, I don't, I don't view abolish the police as like um, a mature, well thought through movement. I don't think they can answer the most basic questions, but it sort of seems like because producers and editors take their cues from Twitter and on lefty Twitter, abolishing the police is very popular and you can actually get yelled at for expressing any other opinion. So you get a lot of very softball pieces, including recently in the New Yorker about abolishing the police that um, don't, don't really reflect high standards of quality. So yeah, I, I think this is a problem and the solution is just to spend less time on Twitter. Yeah, that would be that would be that would be nice if, if yeah if we if we could um, yeah you know when you said that you know you'd be surprised how many people reached out to me or the kind the the kind of people who reached out with support every single per- I hear every single person who goes through something like this say that right and I I just wonder why is it that like why do they have to say it why do they have to say it just privately like why are the people who are against the crazies so cowed well i mean so dan savage the sort of something of a gay icon and famous sex columnist he uh 
Um, there was some dumb blow up involving me recently. He just tweeted like, look, this is dude, calling Jesse transphobic is ridiculous. Listen to this interview he did with a trans clinician. Uh, he got, you know, it was, it, well, it's weird. It's like, it, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of all tweets. But from his point of view, he got shellacked for like two days straight. He was a trending topic. There's a huge price to be paid, or it feels like there is if you step out of line, because suddenly it feels like your whole community is turning against you. But it's an illusion. This isn't really your community. It's it's the, the 5% of most disturbed people who spend the most time on Twitter. But it just, it feels very unpleasant in the moment. So I think that explains the private emails. People don't want to be Dan Savage. <laughs> yeah. And it seems very, you know, it seems very just like lazy and dumb. I mean, it, and it's very sort of easy to thwart. So I've had a few, I mean, I have a decent amount of Twitter followers now, but I used to have much fewer and I used to be much, uh, you know, it'd be much worse if I was dunked on because my mentions would get full up. Now I have enough of my own followers that, you know, it's like I have, I have my own soldiers on my side that could, that will like stand up to me and there will be other stand up for me and have other mentions and stuff. But I would mm-hmm. notice stuff like, uh, uh, like if someone would like big would like want to dunk on me, and they retweeted me, I would get like a lot of mentions off of that. But if like somebody ju- uh, just screenshotted me and they were like, you know, a similar level of like uh, uh, prominence, like nobody would come after me because they were that lazy. Like they wouldn't like go through the trouble of like search my name and find my Twitter account and yell at me. But like if somebody retweeted me, it was like much easier for them. It's yeah, yeah. Literally that lazy and stupid, right? It's just like, you know, I'm I'm just, you know, it's dopamine. I'm just doing clicks. I have such a short attention span. I'm not gonna even look up this person's Twitter account. I'm not gonna look up their email and like send them an email, right? I get I get relatively I get relatively few angry emails relative to uh you know angry tweets. It's like anything like that is just too much work. And so it's just Twitter just has made it so easy to have like this dopamine fix of just like attacking somebody. And you know. It's it's just a fundamental unseriousness to it, but this unseriousness like just runs our politics that are an actual discourse, and it's just a very sad thing. Yeah, it's it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I appreciate you. I mean, I appreciate you going out there and telling the truth, and you know, sticking your neck out. I mean, that, that that's great. Um, and, and you know, you said like you know you're lucky to do this for a living. I feel the same way too. I mean, I think you know to be able to write about things you're interested in as like your job. I mean, you know, that, that's that's a gift, and you know, I think the least we yeah, can that's do. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, the least we can do is you know say what we think. So uh, there's that. Um, what are you working on? Uh, what are you working on now, Jesse? What's the next big project? Uh, a couple. There's a magazine article I'm hoping to write that I can't say anything about. I haven't pitched it yet. Um, obviously, I would love to have an opportunity to write another book, but I don't know yet. Some larval ideas. So mostly I'm just humming along with the with Blocked and Reported, the podcast, and with my newsletter, Single Minded. Uh, yeah. And then they're, I'm hoping to sort of get going on a couple of bigger projects soon, but we'll see how that shakes out. Okay. So great. Well, we'll look forward to your work. And uh, thanks for joining us, Jesse. It's been great. Thank you very much for having me, Richard.